as we often call me, and it truly is a tremendous privilege, a great honor to be able to assemble in the name of God. Isn't it interesting how often we assemble for other purposes, PTA meetings, perhaps other kinds of activities at work, and yet what a blessing it is to assemble for the higher purpose of worshiping God in truth and in spirit, as we've already commented both in prayer and even in song tonight. Surely we can make the powerful statement about the blessing of allowing a meeting like this one and even as we sing together as we pray together and now for the next few moments to give some consideration to the 98th psalm let me invite you to turn there a moment ago brother glenn read for us two of the verses out of that 98th psalm and in just a moment we'll give some consideration to some thoughts that seems to, to be easily developed from that particular psalm itself as you notice at this point, our reading in the Old Testament will continue in the book of Psalms for at least uh, the next several days. And so at this point, it looks as if the sermon next Sunday will also come from the book of Psalms. But one of the things that is very apparent as you and I read the Psalms is that many of them have, of course, a very different thrust. Some of the early ones, say Psalm 18 on to Psalm 25 or so, those call us to appreciate the magnificence and magnitude of God. This set of Psalms, Psalm 92 on to about Psalm 103, highlight for you and me the nature of worship to God, the features attached to that worship. And so tonight's Psalm falls right into the character of that particular set. You'll notice with me in just a moment, as you look at the middle part of that slide, as the seed of the kingdom, which is the word of God, is sown, Luke 8, 11, we appreciate that it will bring forth the fruit which God has in mind for it to bring forth. He promised that in Isaiah 55, verse number 11. He asserted that my word shall not return unto me void. Tonight, as we think about proclaiming it, as we do so in our daily walk of life, I would submit that the thoughts of this psalm will be very meaningful and also very, very encouraging to each of us. It is, then, with no further ado, why don't we give some thought to the structure of where this psalm sits. Please look for a moment at Psalm 95, verse number 6, at least to highlight some of the features that we considered just a moment ago. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. A psalm that calls us to the height of worship, the excellency with which it should be offered, the appreciation that's describing it. Notice he says, let us kneel before the Lord. Worship should ever be presented in a way that we recognize His greatness, not ours. We recognize His magnificence, not ours. Notice in Psalm 96, verse number 4, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. For he is to be feared above all gods. He has no match. He has no equal. There are none that sit in a location comparable to his. You may notice also the way that several of these psalms begin. Please just note the following quickly. In Psalm 93, verse 1, the first three words of that psalm, The Lord reigneth. Look at Psalm 97, verse number 1, how it begins. The Lord reigneth. Psalm 99, verse number 1, The Lord reigneth. We are in the very presence of the one who reigns absolutely over all of it. The Lord reigneth. Might we appreciate then that worship, and it may appear that some of our future lessons may cast a strong spotlight on the integrity, the specifics, and the meaning of worship. 
because so many of the Psalms bring us to that appreciation. For tonight, Psalm 98 has a different thrust. It's at this point, might we read the first four verses of Psalm 98. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm hath gotten Him the victory. The Lord hath made known His salvation. His righteousness hath He openly showed in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered His mercy and His truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. As you noticed along with me the middle pair of verses, verses 2 and 3, we find a fact that was set forth in the long ago, and yet that fact continues to be overwhelmingly remarkable. Again, it says, The Lord hath made known His salvation. I entitled the lesson tonight, Salvation of Our God. And I'd like us to consider for the next few moments some features and facets of that drawn and carried into the matter of the New Testament. As we do that, let me ask you to consider a slide that I've entitled the following. A question. In fact, I've even entitled it The Question. You'll notice in the midst of these two verses, a statement is presented, The Lord hath made known His salvation. Now this was in a day and time of ancient Israel. There the children of Israel, and as they gave thought to this fact, God had made known to him His salvation. This might be an appropriate time to observe that word salvation that appears here. Literally means deliverance. God had made known to him, to them, the specifics of their deliverance from their enemies, from those that would be persecuting them, from the nature of those that were their adversaries. God had revealed to them the means whereby they could be freed from those bondages, freed from the character of their afflictions, and delivered from all that went with them. You may notice again the King James Version uses the word salvation in that place of deliverance. As you and I contemplate the circumstance in which we find ourselves today, there is also an overlord, the magnitude of sin, that which separates us from God, that which leads to persecution and ultimately separation, defeat, and death. Are we not in position to still read the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. At this point, might we then ask, has God made known today His salvation as thoroughly, as fully, as explicitly as He did to them? If He has, in what way has He made that known? And in what way can you and I appreciate the directness of the answer? Hence the question. Might we ask, this character question is also asked verbatim in the New Testament, isn't it? You remember the scene in Acts chapter 16. There was a Philippian jailer. This was a man who himself on that occasion was given the position of locking up Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas had come to that city as a response to the Macedonian call, Come over into Macedonia and help us, Acts 16.9. Paul immediately began to set sail. And as he and Silas and their companions came to Philippi, that noble Roman colony city, isn't it true that they first came to know Lydia? She was baptized. She responded to the gospel invitation. 
later there was a damsel woman. Also, we noticed that she was, in fact, overwhelmed by a spirit of divination. She was possessed. That spirit of divination allowed her to be a soothsayer. You'll notice as she each day said, This man speaking to Paul is the servant of the Most High God. That began to trouble and weary Paul. And so we noticed the great power of God through him cast out that spirit of divination. And her masters were, to say the very least, upset. Because they gained quite a bit of money out of her ability to soothsay. After she no longer had that power, they drew Paul and Silas before the officials of the city and accused them of being troublemakers and insurrectionists. We remember that they were beaten. In fact, severely so apparently by the text. And we notice they were then thrust into prison. The midnight hour came and an earthquake occurred. But at that time we find amazingly they were praying and singing praises. Talk about affliction not overwhelming them. Here were two who were in such dire circumstances and yet their spirits had been so lifted. They were the service of God. As we reflect on that which followed, that earthquake did something else. It broke open the doors of the prison. It loosed the bands that had held each prisoner shackled. And so all the prisoners were free to escape. In that day, of course, the jailer, if he allowed anybody to escape, his life was given in return for those whom he allowed to escape. The jailer felt sure that one or more had escaped. He was about to take his own life. Paul, however, appreciating what was about to happen, said, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Paul said, Don't kill yourself. Don't commit suicide. We're all still here. And at that point, the text says, this jailer brought a light and sprang in where Paul and Silas were and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And here's the question. Here was a man who, in fact, in position of this, knew exactly what needed to be asked. He understood something was different about Paul and Silas. They apparently weren't like all the other prisoners. They were rejoicing, singing praises, and celebrating while perhaps the others were moaning and complaining here were two thankful, apparently, that they could be servants to a God like, like the God of heaven. Thankful that they, in fact, could be counted worthy of suffering for His name, to borrow the language of Acts 5.42. We appreciate in light of all of that, that this question was asked, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's the perfect time for Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3, to at least provide us some appreciation. What if Paul had said, I don't know what to tell you? What if Paul and Silas were in position to say, I have not the slightest idea what you need to do to be saved? You and I might notice other occurrences of similar circumstances to that. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and following, after that monumental sermon, you may remember that they asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What if Peter had said, I do not know what to tell you? In Acts chapter 8, when Philip joined himself to the chariot of the Ethiopian nobleman, after the eunuch had said, Here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Acts chapter 8, what if Philip had said, I do not know. You and I might be forever thankful that in the Old Testament, God made known His salvation. He explicitly revealed what was required in order for an individual to appreciate the deliverance and the salvation that God had made known. 
As you and I come to the New Testament, we know something similar prevails. God has made known His salvation. He has, in fact, detailed it in ways that make it difficult to misunderstand. It is at this place to you and I might come that passage in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. It is there that we read, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you, with meekness and with fear. And so, as you look at the question that I still have on that slide to my left, what must I do to be saved? Look at the thoroughness. We must be impressed with the honesty of that jailer. The word what suggests that there is a listing. There is some set of information that provides an answer to that question. The word must. Of the verbs that might have been selected, notice that one identifies a matter of absolute character. It's not what should I do, what may I do, what might I do, what must I do. And the word must carries with it essentiality. It carries with it an absoluteness that is not found in other verbs. What must I do? We notice here that whatever provided the answer to this question was that which the jailer had to do. I, the personal pronoun I. No one could do it for him. He could not do it for anybody else. That still is true concerning salvation, isn't it? The matter that you and I know so well is not something that is on a proxy basis. I cannot do it for anyone else, nor can anyone do it for me. What must I do? That means something must be done. Intent alone is not sufficient. Plans and perspectives along that line are wholly inadequate. This is a listing steps that must be accomplished. Then you'll notice the following. What must I do to be saved? The jailer knew very well that he currently was lost. The state in which he then was was not one in which he was saved. And he knew there was a transition necessary from that state of being lost to a state of being saved. And he inquired of Paul and Silas, what are those steps that make that transition a reality? Oh, today, if only there were multitudes of men and women and boys and girls who in honesty would ask the same question with a desire to appreciate the easiness with which the Lord's salvation has been made known and that they would readily and heartily comply with it. Finally, what must I do to be saved? It would probably be fair to say that's the single most important question that any individual can ask. Often we turn our attention to lofty questions that may be very important to be sure. But in terms of personal salvation, in terms of personal relationship to the God of heaven, there is none to compare with this one. What must I do to be saved? Perhaps at that point we could then revisit Psalm 98 and look at these passages we've just noted briefly in Acts chapter 16. And so why don't we come to this observation as you and I put together those statements in the Word of God, we find that God's New Testament presentation is as straightforward as this. First, we notice again in Psalm 98, The Lord hath made known. How did He make it known? It is to be true that in that Old Testament era, there were prophets, inspired men who were able to come forth and deliver as spokesmen the Word of God. 
They did so often with great majesty and power, but always they did so with the thoroughness of the Word of God at their character. Those men like Elisha and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others, as you and I turn the page to the New Testament, might we observe passages like these. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the inspired writer says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And so we notice that although there was spokesman by virtue of prophets and inspired ones in the ancient era, he says, today the speaking is done by Son. The Word of Christ is that which you and I have providing this matter of answer to a question like this. Furthermore, you'll notice... This information that was shared in that Old Testament era, it says God had made it known and they were apprised of it. Today, isn't that principle still in force? God has made this, His salvation known and He still has means whereby individuals can be apprised of it. You and I use the little four-letter word here to describe that state of affairs. We hear that which is the answer of God. We hear those details of God's salvation. Isn't it true that that's what we find embodied in that book of Acts so many times? On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 37, after Peter concluded the sermon, it says, When they heard this, notice they had become apprised of the fact that they had put to death the Son of God. And in so doing, many of them were pricked in the heart, and they cried at me, and brethren, what shall we do? We notice on this situation in Acts 16, the jailer apparently with carefulness heard what Paul and Silas had to say. You'll notice that matter of hearing is described as follows. It is that general presentation set forth for the benefit of each of us. In Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse number 13, Paul, as he wrote to the Roman brethren, said, "...whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved." But he quickly says, verse number 14, How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on Him in whom they have not heard? And hence there is an important necessity of hearing that which is the revelation of God, the needful answer to this question we've raised tonight. What must I do to be saved? Might we immediately notice, it is not enough for me to have some personal perspective as to this answer. I could be completely wrong. Forever we should keep in mind, 2 Peter 1 verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. And hence, let us look further. One final observation. The importance of hearing was set forth by the Lord Himself on a number of occasions, wasn't it? In Luke 8, 18, as well as Mark 4, 24, Take heed how you hear. Take heed what you hear. Perhaps finally, in light of that thought, hearing alone we appreciate well to be insufficient to a finality and answer. It's not enough just to hear. Remember, the jailer said, what must I do? Now, finally, as you and I seek the blessed news of Jesus, is it any wonder that Zacchaeus heard that in Luke 19.10? That blessed saving message from the lips of the Master himself. But as you and I transition from the thought of hearing, are we not in position to appreciate so readily that that which is heard must be believed? 
it must be such that we have a confidence that that is in fact the truth. You and I again use the word belief to describe that response. Look at some of these passages if you would. That jailer was expressly told to believe. After he had asked again, what must I do to be saved? The very first words out of the mouth of Paul were, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou and thy house shall be saved. He was told to believe. You and I know that wasn't by any means the first occasion in which that message was found. Hadn't Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. There is thus the needfulness of believing that which one has heard. That message of Christ, that message of the truth, that message of the gospel. As you can well see even beyond that, that eunuch in Acts chapter 8, that was an individual who himself had worshipped beneath that system that he knew best. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship and now on his way back homeward, joining himself as Philip did to that chariot. We remember that here was a man who believed what Philip had taught him. He was so convicted of it, he in fact was there in position to witness the water by the travel side. And it was he who inquired of the preacher, may I now be baptized? This discussion of belief perhaps reaches that following statement at the bottom. As we often recollect that that was a central feature of what was told in every instance of those conversion accounts. In Acts 8, 12, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. But they believed what Philip had preached to them. The Corinthians in, first, in Acts chapter 18, verse number 8, it says they heard and believed and were baptized. As you and I give thought then to this plan, this salvation message, maybe we're in a position to notice it doesn't stop there. Nowhere in all the New Testament are we told that belief alone is enough to save. In all those instances, we find that belief led to the, that word do that we noticed earlier. What must I do to be saved? That belief led them to do then that which was beyond the immediate appreciation of belief. As you and I think about what they were next told to do, that immediately sets before us the scene of those on that Pentecost day. Here, we had directly the circumstance, there were 3,000 roughly. They had believed, they were convicted in their heart that they had put to death the Son of God. They believed exactly what Peter said. But notice, they said, what shall we do? What did Peter say? He did not say, you have believed and that is sufficient. He did not say, you have now believed and that alone is enough to guarantee salvation. He told them to repent. The next matter of business for them in needful character was the matter of repentance, and that is what Peter told them. As you and I begin to reflect on that thought, that still rings so wonderfully today. In Luke chapter 13, when they asked Jesus the question touching a subject like that, when he said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. If one is unwilling to repent, then one cannot be saved. That essentiality and that needfulness of repentance perhaps begs the question of some things like these. What is this matter of repentance? The Bible defines it in the following way. It is more than just sorrowfulness for sin. We find that delineated for us in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. 
for their repentance is kept separate from godly sorrow. We find repentance is an extreme sorrowness of mind that results in a change in behavior. Perhaps an individual has been guilty of speaking in ways that were inappropriate, foul language or otherwise. When a person repents, he or she will make a concerted effort to make a change of heart and mind to the point that that language will no longer be utilized. If a person has been dressing immodestly, and on the matter of repentance, they will then seek to dress modestly with sobriety and shamefacedness, 1 Peter 2, 9, and doing so in a way that again will glorify the message of that to which they've responded. Repentance is a change of mind resulting in a change of action. As you can see from those additional passages, it was our Lord who perhaps defined it best, both in Matthew 3 and in Matthew 21. In both those instances, we find that nature of actions that were changed. A metamorphosis, if you please, that took place. Perhaps finally you'll notice that one more time we ask the question, do we have any passages that indicate that repentance alone is the ending point for this plan that we might consider? And again, the answer is no. The reason we know that is this. There are individuals of whom we find record, and upon their asking such questions, repentance was not the end thing they were told to do. Rather, we appreciate another step to be seriously considered. As you give thought of this one with me, we might term it confession. We might term it a public statement of affirmation of that which one has to that point believed and done. A person convicted of sin desirous like that jailer was to be made right with God. What must I do? You must believe. You must repent. There must be a statement of commitment that you make in the hearing of others affirming that which is your belief. I would ask you to pause for a moment and think about how often we give consideration to the matter of confession. It's not just in the matter of God's plan for salvation. When a man and woman reach that point of desiring to be married, they too have a confession to make. With this ring, I thee wed. A statement of affirmation and full desire of the heart that I'm entering into this union with soundness of mind and with firm intent to carry those vows until death do us part. And you'll notice that there is a solemn affirmation in the course of those wedding vows. Often the preacher will ask each one of them to repeat verbatim various statements. Those statements are a statement of confession. Often in states of, in court matters, a confession must be made as if a witness to a testimony in fact took place. Come back to the scene here with me. Jesus had hinted, in fact, strongly so, in Matthew chapter 10 of the place of confession. For there he said, if we deny him, he'll deny us before the Father. But if we confess him, he will confess us before the Father. That statement of confession, a statement about the nature of that which is the firm belief of our heart and our willingness to state it in the hearing of others. You might also appreciate Romans chapter 10, verse number 9, as it carries on into verse 10. With the heart man believeth unto righteousness... And with a mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And therefore, when you and I are in the position of maybe remembering the day that we became a Christian, 
Can you in your mind's eye reflect on the moment, the moving, compelling character that was there when there was a man who said, Do you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And at least most of the time as I witness a smile on their face and they say, Yes, I do. That is such a sweet statement of confidence, assurance, affirmation that there is confidence in who Jesus was, what is about to take place, and the confidence that that gospel that revealed it is the inescapably correct Word of God. That person believes it, has repented, and is now in position of having completed those acts. There's only one final initial one remaining. This statement of confession perhaps leads us to Acts chapter 26. I would ask you to notice the interesting comment that's there. As Paul reflected on his own conversion account, and that's found three times in the New Testament, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. As he recounted his own, there is a not-so-subtle hint of the confession that he had to make at the time of his own baptism. When you and I think about these steps that God has revealed to us, this might be an appropriate time to then think about this nature of confession as it leads us to the next observation. I've stated it as follows. I've stated it in a way that leads us to this act that we were expecting and one that we knew was such a vital part of the New Testament presentation. But I'd like to pause at least at this point and at least make mention of this. There are times when very rightful questions might be asked. Questions such as this. You and I have noted that, for instance, Paul was himself told to be baptized in Acts 22.16. We've noticed, for instance, that other accounts in the book of Acts set before us the recognition that others perhaps were told to believe, but we remember that those on Pentecost, those verbatim words weren't found. We've noticed that those, for instance, in Acts chapter 16 bring us to this jailer. He was told to believe, but then we don't find an explicit mention, let's say, of confession. Is there discord between these accounts? Is there something that perhaps is amiss? Perhaps we could ask it like this. Suppose you were in the process of making a journey. Maybe you were traveling from here to Memphis, Tennessee. So you pause in Cookville and you ask a kind person, I'd like to go to Memphis. Could you give me some instructions? And the person says, get on I-40, travel 290 miles due west. Have a nice day. Well, you travel a little ways down I-40, and perhaps by now you're hungry, so you stop at about Nashville. And you just, out of curiosity, you ask, I'm on the way to Memphis. Can you give me instructions, directions? And the person says, you travel west down I-40, about 185 miles. Have a nice day. Now, the two answers are not the same. The two answers are clearly different. Destination's the same. What's going on? The person drives a little further, stops in Jackson, Jackson, Tennessee. I'd like to go to Memphis, Tennessee. Can you give me some instructions? The person asks the question, and the person quickly responds, travel I-40 West a little bit further. You're now within, oh, about 60 miles of Memphis. Three questions exactly the same, three different answers. How do we understand this? 
I'd submit to you, if we could understand that one, we'll have no problem understanding the way that these answers on the surface might appear slightly different. Those on the day of Pentecost, you see, they had heard what Peter had preached, but they at that point had not yet repented, though they had believed. The text already affirmed to us that they were pricked in their heart. They believed what he said. It was almost as if they could appreciate the blood of Christ on their hands. They didn't need to be told to believe. They had already believed. They needed to be told to repent. And that's what Peter told them, wasn't it? When you and I think about that jailer in Acts chapter 16, he was exactly told to believe because here was a Gentile. He was not in any position to yet have been made known the character and appreciation of that gospel. He needed to believe who Jesus was. And that's the first thing that Paul and Silas told him to do. Today, then, as you give thought to this salvation from God, isn't it sweet that God has made it known? We aren't left to wonder, not in the slightest. In fact, as you come to this matter of baptism, the subject on the slide again to my left, you'll notice that Paul and Silas preached that jailer that night. And the text tells us in verses 32 and following that he was baptized. He became aware of that fact needful for him, and he didn't hesitate in the slightest to avail himself of it. He was baptized sometime in the wee hours of the morning. Among other things, that tells us that the plan of salvation is open any time. If you're convicted at heart at 2 o'clock in the morning, call Roger, Eddie, myself, call one of us. We'll be here, happy to meet you here at any time we can do it. You see, this convenient time that we meet together is just that, and it is so very opportune. But notice, just like that jailer, just like the eunuch who found himself on a wayside somewhere between Jerusalem and, and Ethiopia, he obeyed the gospel there in the area of Gaza. Perhaps you can appreciate some of these statements. Jesus had so powerfully said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Such a simple sentence, one easy to understand. And when you and I appreciate then when someone is immersed in water, it's not that there's power in the water. It's that, that through the doing what the Lord said to do, that one in that process approaches the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is what cleanses those sins away. In fact, isn't it true that some of these verses will bring to our mind the power of baptism? In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Might we then quickly say, if one isn't baptized, you have never reached His death. You've never contacted that which was shed in His death, and that was His blood, John 19, 34. And so apart from a scriptural baptism, there is no attaching to the blood of Christ. No wonder Paul to the Galatians would say in Galatians 3, 26 and 7, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If an individual hasn't been baptized, then you have not put on Christ. At this point, isn't it then beautiful to give thought to this matter of baptism? It really is a burial. And we can understand the reason why. It's because of what has preceded it. One has heard. One has believed. One has repented. In that act of repentance, what is it that took place? 
we realize as it's set before us in Romans chapter 6, the man of sin has died. That old man of sin that was descriptive of that former way of life, that being has died. What does one do with dead bodies? You bury them. And that's what baptism is. It is a burial in which one puts to death, I should say, one buries that old man of sin, and the new creature in Christ is the one that rises out of that tomb, that watery grave. No wonder we're told then again in that same Roman letter, verse number 4, the very next verse, we rise to walk in newness of life. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Behold, old things are passed away, all things are become new. The newness of life that we find then in this new creature takes us right back to Psalm 98. It again says, The Lord hath made known His righteousness, His salvation. His righteousness hath He openly showed in the sight of the heathen. Give some thought to open sight. The plan of salvation, as you and I know, it isn't concealed and hidden in ways that make it extremely difficult to understand. Every conversion account in Acts makes it plain. Every consideration that you and I come face to face with in the Word of God brings us to the conclusion. And that conclusion is this. The sum of thy word is truth. To borrow the language of Psalm 119, verse 160. I would submit to you in light of the following statements on that slide. The very last one is one we mustn't overlook. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the feature descriptive of that matter of baptism leads us to this observation. Baptism does something else. We've contacted the blood of Christ, that we've noted earlier. But notice something about the church is therein stated. We're baptized into the body. That preposition into describes a transition from one state to another. Prior to baptism, we were not in the body. Despite the fact we had believed, despite the fact that one had repented and even confessed, one still was not in the body. It's not until that person has been scripturally baptized that in that act, he is introduced into the body. That body is the church, Colossians 1.18. So one isn't a member of the church until one is scripturally baptized. And even then, the introduction into the church isn't done by you or by me. It's done by the Lord Himself. In Acts 2.47, we again read, Praising God and having favor with all. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Who added? The Lord added. It is at my purview, not even the eldership, but it's the Lord who on the occasion of that scripture baptism, He's the one that added them to the church. And in that recognition, we appreciate then just how powerful the act of baptism is. Perhaps the power of that act leads us to this final slide. This slide then brings us to this consideration. What must I do to be saved? The time of one's baptism, as colossal and as important as that is, it is the commencement of the Christian life. One begins to live at that point. Spiritually, at that point, then one is charged and commissioned to live faithfully until death. Passages such as, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. To that church, 
at Smyrna in Revelation 2.10, he cautioned them that you're about to endure 10 days, proverbial days, figurative days, but 10 days of affliction, persecution. But he said, be thou faithful until death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Faithful until death, unto even the time of death. We find that embodied in much of the book of Revelation, don't, didn't we? Those martyrs who we recognize when the fifth seal and then the sixth seal were opened, what a great difficulty came upon them as that fifth seal was loosed. In fact, there were martyrs beneath the altar. They had been put to death because they were Christians. And yet, even they cried, How long, O Lord, until the cause for which we died will be vindicated? And the Lord said, A little while longer. They were told, in fact, even rec recognized those that were still alive, that they were told to be faithful. You and I then still serve beneath that same requirement to be faithful. It is with that in mind we close our lesson and affirm that just as God made known His salvation in the Old Testament, thanks be unto God He has still made it known today. And so when you and I are asked by someone, what must I do to be saved? We need not say, I don't know. We are not in position to say, I have not the slightest idea. We can say, thus it is written, and refer them to passages in the Word of God in which we with confidence can assert, if you will do this, if you will humbly submit to it, you too can have your sins washed away and you can enjoy life with God as I enjoy that kind of thing is truly a magnificent appreciation. I hope all of us will always be thankful for God's plan of salvation. We included it in virtually every sermon, and maybe it's easy to sometimes forget just how grand it is, just how great that we can know it. I hope one of the things that's a byproduct of tonight's lesson is that little innocent statement of Psalm 98, 2 and 3 can be a statement reminding us of how blessed we are even in the New Testament era. God has made known His salvation. If there's someone in the audience tonight that needs to do that which we've learned about tonight, please don't delay, don't procrastinate. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. To quote Proverbs 27.1, None of us know about tomorrow. You may not live to see the morning, and neither may I. But if you can pillow your head in safety tonight knowing that you're a child of God, it won't matter whether the morning comes or not. Everything will be well with your soul. Sometimes we sing that song, and it is a very personal question. It's asked such that, are all things well? Is it well with your soul? Only you can answer that with firmness and with confidence tonight. And if you can't say yes, why not make it so? Why not come forward in just a moment? The plan of salvation we've studied quickly in rehearsing. It was to hear, to believe, to repent, to confess, and be baptized. And if you haven't done that, let us help you tonight. If you have taken care of that, but you haven't been faithful, you have brought shame upon your life as a Christian, you've brought shame on the, on the church, make that right. Christ is more than desirous of forgiving you, and the God of heaven will do it if you will but repent, confess of those things, and pray to Him. But you need to ask us to pray with you. And if we can help you do that, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?